Hi guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. On today's episode of Habits and Hustle, we have the infamous and famous Charles Koch. Charles Koch is a chairman of the board and CEO of Koch Industries, a position he has held since 1967. He is renowned for growing Koch Industries from a company worth $21 million in the early 1960s to one with revenues estimated as high as $110 billion by Forbes. He is one of the richest men in the world at number 11 and sometimes number 10 hovering. And his company by its revenue is larger than both Boeing and Disney combined. He has transformed the business into a diverse group of companies that employ nearly 130,000 people, making everything from Dixie cups to components in your cell phone. Charles credits the success of Coke Industries to applying proven principles of social and scientific progress, which led to the development and implementation of his market-based management, MBM, business philosophy. He describes MBM as its applications in two of his books, The Science of Success and Good Profit. Charles is now using those principles in philanthropy as a founder of Stand Together to tackle some of the biggest challenges in the U.S., Stand Together is partnering with thousands of social entrepreneurs to help them improve their effectiveness and scale at tackling poverty, improving education, and bringing justice to our criminal justice system, and much more. His new book is called Believe in People, and he's on the podcast today to discuss all of it. It was super interesting uh, speaking with him, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed doing it. Well, thank you guys. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. Um, today, I want to just, I'll, I'll do a proper intro later, but uh, today we have uh, Charles Koch and Brian Hooks who wrote the book, uh, Believe in People. And uh, well, Char- Charles, I think that you are kind of uh, famous, infamous for, I mean, I mean, you're the 11th richest human being in the world. I mean, if people don't know you, they should be Googling you right away. If you believe that. <laughs> well, e- even if you're, even if it's a little bit off, still, you, 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 you're more, you're, you're more financially successful than the majority of us. Let's put this way: I'm not, I'm not broke at this point. <laughs> no, you're definitely not broke. Exactly. Um, and so I think it's very interesting. I know there's a lot that just, there's controversy around some of the things that you um, are, you know, around you a little bit. But I, what I really want to really focus on is just the fact that you've been able to build. I mean, your your, I mean, Coke Industries is what more? It's bigger, more successful than Disney, Boeing. I mean, there has to be some kind of thing that we can glean from that, right? So you took over from your father when you know it was you know, it was successful, but it wasn't even close to where it is today. And I really want to get to understand the principles and of how other people can kind of to kind of take that information and apply it to their own life. So that's why I want I'm so excited to speak to you. Thank you. Well, we're excited to have you speak to us. <laughs> Good. And, and we're obviously going to speak a lot about your book. I think I, I actually I really did enjoy it a lot. Uh, a lot of your a lot of what you write about are things that I speak about on the podcast. And I actually 
tend to agree with. Um, and let's let's start with um, the basics. I mean, you talk a lot about in the book about the bottom, you know, the bottom up uh, approach about social entrepreneurs. Can we talk about um, in, the, in the beginning? How what was some of the things that you did? The bottom up approach and explain what that is. How you were able to kind of grow your your the business from what it was to what it is what it was and to what it is today. Well, it was to uh, central to that is uh, well. Uh, let me go back a little. The uh, uh, after I, I finished college, I worked for a consulting firm in Boston, and I didn't know. I knew what I was good at. It was a very narrow, narrow range of things. And I was trying to find a way to develop it and apply it, my gift. And as you know, our philosophy is everyone has a gift. And the key in, in society and the key for all of us is to find our gift. But not only find our gift, find a way to develop it and apply it to create value for others. And that's the way we can succeed and feel good about ourselves and believe in ourselves. And, and so I was working for this consulting company and I said, well, I, I got three degrees in engineering, but I was a lousy engineer. So that wasn't it. But the only job I could get, it was as an engineer with this consulting firm, but I worked my way around to different departments and I got into management consulting and got to work on strategy and innovation Wow, I was pretty good at that. And so I, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. So at MIT, they had all these spinoffs from professors and students, and I knew a bunch of them. So I was I was going to uh, uh, invest in one of those and go to work for them. In the meantime, my father called me, and he said uh, – he called me several times. Finally, he said – he called me and he said, son uh, – as you know, my health is poor. I don't have long to live, and I'm not really able to run the business we have. We had sales of about 12 million there. So we've grown not only in sales, but other ways, 10,000 fold since then. Uh, so, I mean, that's interesting. How did you do it? I know I'm, I'm a long way to, to get to that. But this, I want to do it. Okay. So, uh, so he said, uh, either you come back to run the company or I'm going to sell it. And he started, he turned things over to me right away. He'd been real tough on me growing up, made me work all the time and a lot of discipline and stuff. And I didn't want that. But once he promised that he would turn it over to me, I said, okay. And he said, you already own an interest in the company. So, okay, this is as good an entrepreneurial offer as I'm going to get. Yeah. Exactly. So I came back and and I was able to make some success, have some success in in improving it because it was in such bad shape, as he said. And uh, and and uh, but I didn't feel good about myself. I was missing something. I mean, it says uh, one of my mentors, Abraham Maslow, uh, uh, put it: if you are not fully developing your capacities and realizing your potential. You may be successful externally, but you will be deeply unhappy. And that was it. I didn't believe in myself. I wasn't happy. So I said, I got to find something 
that will make me feel good about myself and feel I'm really able to contribute. So I started searching for what I call the principles of human progress. And, and there are a lot of them. We use over a hundred of these now in the company and in stand together. And we don't obviously have time to go through all these, but I started applying those and, and they worked. They yes. me. They worked in the company. And so I said, well, I'm apply them in all aspects of my life. So I apply them in raising our children, applied them in my philanthropic work, and then we apply them in, in Stand Together, our, our philanthropic community, applied them in everything. And boy, so I've dedicated my life to discovering more of these principles and concepts and apply them. And how do we better apply it every day? That's what I focus on. And, and then because I'm only good at the narrow, that narrow range of concepts, then I surround myself with people who are good who are all the other things that need to be done that I'm not good at because I learned the hard way when I didn't and I tried to do everything, I failed. <laughs> so I got good feedback. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Well, I think a lot of uh, there's a lot of through lines in your book that I think uh, I think that are um, very um, sim- like simple for people to understand. Number one, that your empowerment you empower your people um, or people you believe in basically empowering people to a find who they are, what they're good at, what their talents are, and to self actualize. You know, and and. To me, I mean, that really resonated. I thought that was something that I've always believed in. And I guess my question to you is, I, I know that um, you learned that from, what was, it, what was that guy's name? Maslow? Who did Abraham it? Abraham Maslow. Maslow. Yeah. Um, how, so how did, you come, how, how did you come about him? Like, were you already kind of searching for something and you kind of, you, you, you got that early on and then you just, like you said, started to apply it. How do people, in your opinion, begin that process of uh, finding what their talents are, how to self-actualize? What is, what is the process? Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it requires effort, time, and trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I, so I said, I've got to build a, a network of people who will expose me to different ideas of all kinds. Not one ideology, but all across the board, all different disciplines. And and then as they did, and they'd say, okay, okay, here's what you're looking for. Here, read this book or meet this professor. And so I built this network. And so I was constantly exposed. I was deluged with ideas. And I got in these book clubs and and searching for these and, and meeting other people who had different ideas. So that's it, trial and error. And then I'd find some, and then I studied history. Okay, what ideas worked in history? What what transformed people? What turned people, transformed people's lives and enabled them to become social entrepreneurs? And then when there were enough of them, how did they change society? So it enabled more and more people to realize their potential. to self-actualize. Yeah. And, and, and so as I read that, okay, I figured, I mean, I, I could see that we needed in our businesses to focus on becoming the preferred partner 
to everyone, every organization that was important with. That would be our customers, our employees, our suppliers, our communities, and society as a whole. Why do we need to do that? Because if people who are important to you and organizations don't want you to succeed, they aren't going to support you. Yeah. And you want everybody to help you. And the only way you're going to get that is if you're dedicated to helping them. Yeah. No, I think that's really, I think that's very true. I mean, um, you talk about that, like how you empower your super, like the, the number one thing that you tell the super, the supervisor's number one job is to empower their, the employees underneath them. Absolutely. And uh, to help them self-actualize. And so right. what, what does that involve? It involves them helping them find their gift, what they're good at, and they'll be passionate about. Yeah. And then, and then get them in a role that uses that, not stick people in a role that they're no good at. I mean, the example I use with our people, look, our supervisors is, look, let, let's say I was hired for my, an opera company to be business manager. And then the tenor got sick and they say, okay, Chucky, you got to sing tenor now. We would be bankrupt. <laughs> so, so that's and that's what we do. And that's what businesses do to people. And 100%. Then give them reviews. You're no good at this. You got to improve. Well, you could give me feedback on singing till I was a grease spot on the floor. <laughs> we would still go bankrupt. And so we, so what we look at if somebody's trying hard and they're not succeeding, okay, we say it's our fault. We have you on the in the in the wrong role. And if we get in a business. And, and customers aren't buying for us and we're not profitable, that's not the customer's fault. We're not a victim. We didn't develop the capabilities to create value, superior value for our customers. So we got to either build those capabilities or we got to find different kinds of customers and have different products and services that, that we can create superior value for our constituencies. You know, Jennifer, no, I, we tell the stories in the book of a whole lot of different people that have gone through this process. When Charles talks about self-actualization and all of that, it can sound daunting. But one of the things that we try to stress is it's it's a process, right? And you're never done, but you can yeah. continually become more and more self-actualized. And so how do people do it? Well, it's, we often make the mistake that we've got to stop what we're doing and all of a sudden find something brand new. But I think one of the points that that we've learned from a lot of the people that we've worked with is that you know you start with with what's close to you, and then you you go on to this discovery process, and you build sort of your your self actualization through a realization of your skills over time. No, I I, I mean that part really hit home for me. That's why I was like I was really excited to talk to you guys because I like I, I talk about this all the time. I think that, and you said something about this in the book too about like some other some other person that you um, another psychologist, but. Um, how not no, not everybody's smart or everyone's uh, yeah, not smart or stupid. Yeah, Howard Gardner, right? His multiple intelligence theory. Yes, that 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 there are all these independent intelligences, and none of them are, none of us are good at all of them. Exactly. I, found, I was out of the eight he has. I think there are many more than that. There are many. So I was only good at part of one of the eight, and so yeah. that, my whole life is focused on that. And you've done pretty well. 
Yeah, no, <laughs> that works. When you focus on what you're really good and you, and you can tell I'm passionate about it and I love what I'm doing and I'm turned on every day, I want to use my abilities to contribute. And part of that is finding the people to partner with me who are good at all the other things that we need to do to succeed and contribute. Absolutely. I mean, this is this this is the crux of like what I talk about all the time, because if you like you're saying, you're trying to fit like a square peg into a round hole, you're you're right. going to constantly, you know, it's, it's it, it like wears on you and your confidence. But if I that's why that part really resonates, like you have to kind of not you're not no one's going to be smart at everything. Like I know my my lane and I stay in my lane and then I find other people to basically balance out what I'm bad at. Right. And that's, that's a point that I think people need to kind of hear over and over again. Right. And that's why I love this part of it, the whole self-actualization and also the empowerment part, because when people feel like they're actually making a difference or they're really being listened to and, and involved, it makes them want to be better and be involved versus being just another cog in the wheel that no one cares about. Absolutely. But, and the key here is you've got to find both what you're good at and what you're not good at. That's Absolutely. important because people are really good at something. Let's say you're a great actor. So you think because I'm a great actor and I can act all these parts of people who do all these things, well, I can go do all these things. So they become experts in their mind on, on all these other things. Right. Which oh, absolutely. And, and, and we all fall into that. So the other part of this is, is challenge. And that's, that's one of, one of our, uh, principles of, of human progress from Karl Popper, uh, the, 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 the prominent uh, uh, philosopher of science, which, he, which is science as falsification. That is, whatever theory in science, the proper role, uh, method in science is whatever theory you come up with, the first thing you've got to, you've got to it's got to be testable and then you need to find challenges that you've got to work on finding the flaws and find other people who will show the flaws in it. So that's what I do. And because I know I, I get a lot of ideas and some of them are pretty good and some are pretty lousy. <laughs> and boy, I don't want to just charge off and have us doing that and have this massive failure. So right. I, I say, okay, who... What are the key things that need to work to make this acquisition, this strategy, whatever, successful? Who will who will really challenge me on that? And who has insights in that? So I get four, five, six people together. Right. And we have a brainstorming. And they ch I said, challenge me. Show me what's wrong with it, with right. my idea. And every time we come up with a better idea than I started with. Right. So you don't surround yourself. Yeah, no, because you don't surround yourself with people who are just yes men who just agree with you. That doesn't really get very far. Right. Like you need to be so you like you you have that wherewithal. I mean, which I think also and you talk about this a lot, too, is like the education system. Right. We're putting everyone through the same funnel yeah. when, you know, and this I, I see it all the time. I have two small kids and 
you know, even like fr- friends of mine or when I was going through the school system, you know, if you're not doing it the way that if you're not good at the way that they're uh, how it works, you're deemed stupid or you have a learning mm-hmm. disability. And, and, and that also like mentally plays on somebody's, you know, ability to self-actualize mm-hmm. because you don't feel that you have the, you don't feel like you can because people, but you just, you can't do that one dimensional type of learning. So you, you, don't, um, you don't believe in yourself, right? Because you've never right. you had the chance to really discover who you are and what you're good at. You you brought it up the one dimensional schooling, which is unfortunately what most of of, of the kids today have to go through. Yeah, in public or private schools doesn't matter. Most of them are just this one one dimensional, one size fits all. Right. But you look at it from a three dimensional perspective, right? You spend a lot of time helping kids to go through this discovery process. Then they get to find out, hey, you know what? I'm not good at a lot of things, and that's okay. But I am good at some things. Right, exactly. It's hard to get that belief in themselves. And that's, I mean, that's kind of the, the first step to, um, to a future. So, I mean, there's a lot more that we can be doing to improve the, the ability of kids to, to have that kind of an experience of three-dimensional education. And we have, we have a lot of programs. It was in, is in the book. I started this program called Youth Entrepreneurs. Yeah. And uh, in one school uh, in, a, in a tough neighborhood here in Wichita, and uh, and that was the idea. We would because and it, so kids were attracted to it that had thought everything was hopeless. They were looking for something different, and they heard, "Well, we we can maybe get some money in this right. class." And so because what we do, okay, you you prepare a business plan. We'll help you talk through what you're good at and whatnot, and what you might products or services you might have. And, and they go through that. And then the ones that come up with a good business, a good plan, and they seem like it might work, we give them some little seed capital, a few hundred dollars to go start it. And then help mentor them and get local entrepreneurs to help mentor them. And it transformed their lives. Many of these yeah. kids are failing everything and they start making straight A's because they see a purpose in it. And now some of them are entrepreneurs. And they get scholarships to college or trade school or whatever fits them. I mean, it is so exciting to see. No, that's amazing. I, I wanted to talk to you about the youth entrepreneur program and also the narrative for the whole individualized education. Yeah. So how are you doing it? And how do people like how are how do people if they're not if they're not in Wichita or whatever, how are they going to be able to be involved in it or get more uh, yeah, how are they going to do it? Like, can you talk about that whole program yeah, a little yeah, we're bit? More in, in depth? We're in. Uh, excuse me for for talking over you, but uh, oh. yeah, we're in forty three states now because yeah. as people see what it's done, they say, "I want that in my community." Okay, if you'll set it up so they have mentors, it's not just classroom. This is this is life life's work kind of thing. So they need outside mentors. And so, and then, and then we've, 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 uh, we put it on the internet now. Uh, we have like 60,000 users now around the country and some of them could be homeschooling. So they, and, but teachers. And so our main uh, uh, focus is on the teachers and these teachers, when they see the difference in this, in this class or this program and the other things they're teaching, it transforms them. Wow. 
Yeah. I can really accomplish something. I can now help these kids. And so it's so so we we empower the teachers. I mean, this is bottom up. Right. So they can empower the kids. Absolutely. So the cool thing about yeah. entrepreneurs is it's one of several hundred of these opportunities for, as you said, the, the individualized education. We've got a, a project with the Walton Family Foundation where we're helping to support 600 new projects uh, that'll be bottom up. Most of them will come from teachers who have figured out just a better way to teach in their class, but they need a little bit of capital to, to see whether or not they can expand the program. And they run the gamut. I mean, they're some of what will be kind of familiar to people, especially in, in this COVID world where so many of our kids are, are having to learn remotely. Now there'll be new digital projects, but some of them are, are really hands-on. There's a project that we supported called Uncommon Construction. It's this brilliant project. Never would have thought of it if you had sort of said, hey, let's let's start a program like this. But it's a bottom-up solution based on what one of these teachers figured was working for, for him and his kids. Um, he teaches a class on construction sites. And so it's for kids, you know, who've sitting in a classroom for eight hours a day just really doesn't work for them. But they're smart. They just haven't been able to get turned on to the right way to learn. Yeah. And so he invites them into uh, a program where they all build a house together. And, and what do they learn? They learn how to get along with each other, right? How to solve problems. Because when you're doing construction, it doesn't ever go as, as planned. <laughs> yeah. They learn geometry. <laughs> yes. right? They learn, well, what do you do when you don't have power? And you mm -hmm. plan today to you know, use all your power tools. How do you make sure you don't waste the time? So they're developing all of these life skills, as well as the basics, you know, the reading, the writing, and and the math uh, that they would otherwise probably not have gotten if they were sitting in a classroom all day. Not right for everybody, but but it could be right for a whole lot of kids that otherwise wouldn't have that opportunity. Oh, absolutely. So what age can you start this at? Like what age is the, is the uh, I guess, the when the, someone can actually start doing this? Doing the, uh, the, the uncommon construction? No, 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 not that. This overall, like the whole youth entrepreneur, like what at what no. age do people start being able to do that? Because I think this is like a great, I mean, again, like I was, I wasn't, I'm not just saying this because I'm trying to be polite, but when I was reading the book, there are so many things about it. I was like, this is like, this makes so much sense. It's, it's exactly what I think. Like more people who don't know should know about these things. Well, it all comes back to this, this idea that Charles mentioned, right? You start with this deep belief in people. Everybody has a gift. And so then if it's our job as a society to try to empower them to realize that gift, then the answer to your question is, when, when can you start? Start right now, right? Start whenever. I mean, kids from, you know, from birth, basically, right? This but is our, our job. Bro, what, pro, what, what programs do we have that, that reach the youngest? Yes, exactly. And what, what would you say? Well, I, th I think what, what we found in recent years is actually the prior to kindergarten is a really, really important time in, uh, in kids' lives. But you've got to, and, and so we haven't done a whole lot there, but that's, that's an area that we're moving into. What, as I understand it, what you do there in terms of really nurturing uh, kids to, to begin to realize who they are uh, is you make sure that they feel loved, right? You make sure that they've got the kind of personal interaction, that they can start to develop relationships with adults, they can start to model behavior, that sort of thing. And there are certainly programs that, that help families to do that or help kids who don't have um, you know, a traditional family to be able to do that. But as kids develop at each stage, there's a program that's tailored to what's appropriate to, to them that can really help them to begin to, to realize things. So we start in, in basically in K through 12. 
But there's a lot of opportunity to apply these ideas before that as well. And it's an area that we're getting into. Now, is this part of the Stand Together uh, Foundation too? Like if someone goes there, they can find this type of programming Mm -hmm. and they can look into it? That's right. Yes. All of these. Stand Together. Yeah. All of it. So, so then what is narrative four? Can you talk about that a little bit? I saw that in the book too. Yeah. Narrative four is what it's one of my favorite programs. It's just this awesome experience. If anybody gets a chance to go and actually participate, it's, it's like life changing. So narrative four was started by um, really uh, effective storytellers, uh, fiction writers, a guy named Colin McCann, um, an, an, an Irish uh, author uh, started it and surrounded himself with, with other people. And the whole idea is that, um, we need to develop empathy uh, between people who don't otherwise share, don't, don't feel like you have a lot in common. And so what Colin and the team do is they uh, organize what they call story exchanges. And so you, you come into a room, you sit down next to somebody who you don't feel like you've got anything in common with, and you spend some real time together, a few hours at, at least, and you tell each other a, a story that's really meaningful to your life. You go into detail. Uh and then you, then the other person does the same thing. And then you get back into the, the group, say 20, 25 people, and you've got to tell that other person's story as if it were your own. Still, tell them the first person. Oh, and, interesting. And what it does after you've had to basically live, you know, in that oh, person's so shoes and really internalize their experience, even by just, just articulating it, uh, you develop a lot more empathy for somebody that if, when you walked in the room, you figured, well, what do I have in common with this person? But the really cool thing about the program, what I didn't expect when I saw it, is it doesn't just help you to develop empathy. It helps the person whose story you're telling to develop confidence because they hear somebody else telling their story. Uh, yes. And they think, wow, that's a great story. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's my story. <laughs> yeah. right, right, right. I believe in myself more. And when we do this, we, we do this. We support programs that do this in, um, say, some of the, the poorest uh, high schools in the country. And so sometimes when those kids hear that other kid tell their story, it's the first time that they felt important, right? And it's this building block towards really helping them to believe in themselves and giving them the confidence to start to believe in other people. No, I think that's amazing. And you run Stand Together, correct? Like you're the, you're the. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm the founder, but I'm, I'm kind of just in the philosophy department. We've been been working (laughs) for about about 20 years on this sort of stuff. I mean, listen, I think, you know, I always say that way you do one thing in life is how you typically do everything. And I'd love the, how you took all these principles that you, you, you know, you figured out, you know, with business and you're now just applying them to your philanthropy your bit, your, your personal life. I mean, right. I, I, I want to talk more about these principles. Like what you talk about virtuous cycles of mutual benefit. Now we talk, what, what do you say? What do you mean by that? Is not, yeah. is that a principle or is that just, well, you could talk. Well, that's, about a, that's a principle that I came up with. I know you did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that's, that's really taking uh, uh, these steps that we talk about for the individual to self-actualize. Right. What's required? It starts self-actualization requires believing in yourself. And the way you believe in yourself is you find your gift, you develop it, and you find ways to apply it that will help others. And so it makes you successful by making other people successful. And you start to believe in yourself and self-actualize. And then it comes to what Maslow called synergy. Right. And that's that to self-actualize, you have synergy in your life. And what that means is 
is the selfish and unselfish merge because you are trying to succeed by helping others, creating value for others. So, so that's unselfish. Right. Absolutely. So what, which is selfish and which is unselfish? It all runs together. And that's why, why at 85 am I so passionate and work? <laughs> I love it. Every day I wake up, okay, how do I contribute today? What can I do? How can we apply these principles better? How can we help people more? How, wow. And, I, and then I see somebody who's learned these and they're transformed and they're pumped up and they're self-actualizing. Wow. Then they're like, okay, I got to find more ways to do this. Right. This, this is your most, passion. This is the most fun I've ever had. <laughs> what time do you wake up in the morning, by the way? Like, what do you do? What's your daily routine? I want to know what you do. I want to be like you. Oh, no, no, you don't. That's yeah, I too do. Many hard, too many hard knocks, <laughs> too many schools and hard knocks to beat this <laughs> in my thick head. But uh, no, I get up. I get up by six. If I wake up at 530, I get up, let's say 530 to six. And then I get to the office by uh, by seven. And uh, you still go, I'm sorry to interrupt you. So do you still you still go to the office every day? Well, uh, every day during the week. Well, that's what I mean. I don't mean uh, on Saturday and Sunday. I work on Saturday and Sundays, too, because that's more fun than anything else. <laughs> God bless you. Okay, I love it. I'm not I drive them nuts with <laughs> with voicemails and stuff all time of day or night. But anyway, so Good for then, you. Then I come to the office and and go come there early before most people do and get caught up on my paperwork, what came overnight, and and get organized and then start uh, driving people nuts. <laughs> 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 and stuff and uh and it's just one fun thing after another but i all our our people here at coke industries and we're in my office by the way is that your office that you're sitting in yeah so of all those books what's your what is your favorite book that you uh, have over there well that it's probably the the one or one of the ones i, I mean i have a bunch of favorite ones but the one that, one of the ones that helped me the most is what Maslow called Eusychian management. And I will define that. <laughs> now it's been reprinted. When I first read that, I uh, Maslow was dead and it was out of print. And so I conducted his widow and got the rights to reprint thousands of copies to distribute to all of our employees back then. We have many more employees now. So that would be a big job today. And, wow. And and a lot of these concepts I talk about, self-actualization, synergy, all of this, uh, and 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 how to organize, how to be a social entrepreneur, a lot of this is in there. I mean really it's a fat Maslow on management. I mean it is it's the best management book. I've read a bunch of management books, most of them aren't worth much. Right. This is this is profound. Wow. Do you have an extra one that I can look at, perhaps? Or yeah, we'll send you a copy. <laughs> Will you send me one? Will you pro do you promise? Can yeah. I can I hold you to that? Yeah, Absolutely. no, it is tripping. I've read now all of Maslow's books. And then and then uh and then another my is in my book, as you saw, I have 
I was asked to write in the conclusion who's most influenced me. And I, I said, well, two people in, in real life and then, and then two authors. And those are, 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 are Maslow and Hayek would be the most. And then, and then what role models and they would be uh, Frederick Douglass and Viktor Frankl. Right. And we can, if, if anybody's interested, we can talk about, but anyway, with Hayek, it's, it's his, uh, what he said was probably the greatest discovery of mankind. And, and that is that people, the discovery that people can live together in peace and to their mutual advantage if they are only limited by abstract rules of conduct. And to me, those rules of conduct, of conduct, which are my North Star, is, is a, a system of equal rights and mutual benefit where people succeed by assisting one another and everyone has the ability to realize their potential. So everything I work for is in that. You can see those are, are kind of the 50,000-foot version of what we're trying to do with individuals. So you combine uh, Maslow won the Nobel Prize for Economics, but he was a philosopher as well. And, uh, and Maslow was a psychologist, but he was a philosopher as well. Right. This is what I learned when I started studying these. It doesn't matter what discipline, they're, they're interrelated. Yes. That one discipline, and, and we find one that doesn't, and it's jarring against the others. Well, you got to be a little suspicious of that one. Yeah, I love that. I think, no, I, 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 I totally understand and I agree. But let's talk about that. I mean, you know, you mentioned it. You talk about in the book, uh, Victor Frankl and Frederick Douglass. Those are, would you say those are the, your role models you said who are living to, like, who are here today? Are no, those no, the two? no, no, no. They're not living right now. I mean, I was going to say those are the ones from yeah, but, yeah. a long time ago, you know. Yeah, but the, no, because, uh, because they overcame the most. They did. Talk about them. I think they're both great examples, actually, yeah, in your they, book. Yeah. They had the greatest hardship. I mean, let, let's just take Frederick Douglass. He was born into slavery, mm -hmm. and he overcame that and became not to go get vengeance of all the people who tormented him mm -hmm. and created all this injustice, but to eliminate injustice for everybody. And what's great in his autobiography, he gives the aha moments that caused him to be a social entrepreneur. So if I could just take a couple of minutes and describe those, I think, yes. I, I mean, that's been very helpful to me. Okay. When he was, when he was eight, he was a, 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 a house slave. Yeah. And so, uh, so he saw uh, the, uh, the mistress of the house teaching her kids to read. And, and he found out in that, I won't go through detail, but he found out that he wasn't a slave because he was inferior, which is what he'd been told, but because he was being kept ignorant. Right. So he, on his own, entrepreneurially at age eight, found ways to teach himself to read. And then the next real 
highlight moment was when he was 16 and he got the opportunity to teach uh, teach Sunday school. And he secretly, which was illegal, was teaching the other slaves to read. And here's what he said. Here he was a slave, mistreated, horribly treated. He said, at last, I found a way to contribute. Just think of that. Yeah. When you're in I, this condition and you're teaching us, and then he was punished and beaten and tried to destroy his will. And he beat up this slave breaker he was assigned to. And then he said, at last, I'm a man. Yeah. This is, believe me, this is all believe in yourself. hundred percent. You should motivate. So he says, I'm going to escape. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. Okay. Then he escaped and he found ways to support himself. So he says, I'm not only a free man, I'm a free working man. Mm-hmm. Once again, I can contribute. Then he started going to abolitionist rallies and Garrison and all the top abolitionists were speaking. And they saw him there, a former slave. So they called on him to speak. And he was the best speaker of them all. So he found his gift and he became very successful. He became the most photographed person in America. Associated Amazing. with presidents. No, I love that. He's like a real social entrepreneur. And I feel like also that Victor, the first one that in your book was Victor Frankl, who who was in the, who was in the uh, Holocaust. Um, In the, in death camps. And he dedicated himself. Everyone was starving and assigned. He, and most of them, I mean, many of them were, they would turn in others to get extra food ref. He dedicated himself to helping the others. He was a psychiatrist to counseling Mm -hmm. them and he'd give them part of his food. If their shoes were worn out, he'd give them his shoes. And he said, the reason I survived, I had meaning. I had a purpose. The others were just trying to survive as long as they could. And who wants to survive in that? And, and so his saying that, that I, that I, that I quote all the time, is ever today, ever more people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. So that's what we all need. That's what Frederick Douglass found. That's what Victor Frankl, and that's what I've got to do every day. I've got to find meaning. I've got to contribute, or I don't feel good about myself. And that's the most important person you've got to please. Everybody wants to please the crowds and stuff. Fui, please yourself. And the way you please yourself is use your capacities to contribute. I love that. It's the key to longevity. I mean, listen, listen to you. You know, you're 85 years old and you're you're sharper and more with it than like people literally like 20 years old. I mean, you're a great role model, I feel, for a lot of different people because you keep yourself, There's you have purpose behind what you're doing. Absolutely. Like, Right. I mean, do you so can we because we've been talking about these two guys who are who are social entrepreneurs and stand together. I don't just so people understand what is the definition of a social entrepreneur if people don't know what it is and and why they make such an impact on different things. Like you talk about how a social on people like that, the best people to actually make a change are these people because they're like living in the in that uh, space. So. 
Yeah. Well, well, we, 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 look at, we look at social entrepreneurs <laughs> as people who, where others can only see the problem or the barrier that's holding people back. A social entrepreneur can see a solution that empowers people to overcome that barrier. And when you hear stories like Viktor Frankl or Frederick Douglass, who have overcome literally the most difficult barriers that anyone can imagine, it seems like, well, that's a really hard thing to, to be a social entrepreneur. But the point we try to make in the book is there's actually a social entrepreneur in all of us. And so the opportunity is to really find your passion and apply your passion to help empower others. And, and what, we, what, we, what we find in our work and, and what we talk about in the book is, you know, the social entrepreneurs are often found in the most unlikely places. So a guy like Scott Strode, for instance, who's just one of my, um, my favorite people as well, somebody we've worked with now for, for four years or so. Um, and Scott's a fitness guy. And so, <laughs> but, but Scott runs a group called the Phoenix, which is one of the most uh, yeah. effective recovery, addiction recovery programs in the country. It's about twice as effective as some of the best clinical programs. Uh, but Scott's a guy that most people wouldn't have invested in to start a recovery program because Scott himself is a former addict, right? For right. 10 years, he struggled with addiction. But that's why we invest in him. Because right. he's closest to the problem. He understands what it means to struggle. And because he has that knowledge, he's able to come alongside others who are struggling and empower them to, uh, to improve their, their lives. He does it through physical fitness. He does it by creating a, a sense of community and, and helping people to discover that, hey, I didn't think I could do anything, but I can, I can do a few push-ups and then I can do a few pull-ups and then I can get on the, the bike and, you know, and, and ride around the, uh, the mountain, you know, up in, uh, Colorado, where he where he started things out, and there's there are uh, thousands of of those people that we work with, which is amazing. But the story about Scott to me, what's what's important to people who are kind of looking for this meaning, this purpose, is Scott started with what he knew best, and then he said, "How can I use what I know best to help other people to do more than they could on their own?" And that's Absolutely. really how you start on that path to social entrepreneurship. So I know, now uh, I'm sorry. Go go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. I was going to say, he was just speaking my language, you know, talking about a push-up and a pull-up and, you know, just like how how you start people. Go ahead. No, you, please. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, uh, uh, and that's what we intend the book to be, a guide to help uh, people from all walks of life transform their lives. And then if that really works, then help others do the same. And then you'll be a social entrepreneur and then you'll feel really good about yourself and you'll have a great life and you'll live a long time <laughs> and be as happy as you can be. Uh, I mean, listen, if I want to live as I want to live like you, I'm telling you, I wasn't just saying that. Um, I also love the story in the book about the guy who was a gang member. And when someone told him that story about like, you have such leadership skills and people are, um, looking at you to do bad all the time. Why don't you reverse it and, you know, try to do good. And that was like the his aha moment. And now he's working with all these, the guy who was, I think he was the guy who Anton was like a, Lucky. Anton yes, Lucky. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Anton's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. And let, let me tell you a story about Anton. After we've been working with him a few years, we teach our management philosophy based on these principles of, of human progress. Uh, we offer it to all the social entrepreneurs and they can use it to whatever extent they, they want. And so Antog said, well, we were, we were exposed to this and we said, God, that, they were skeptical. And they said, uh, 
Well, we, we run ours like a gang because we're, they call themselves OGs, original gangsters. Yes. <laughs> I mean, so they, hear you say they that. know how to deal with gangs and how to deal with kids that want to go in gangs because they've lived it. Yes. That's, that's what Brian was, was talking about. So, so I was visiting with him one time and, uh, and I said, well, tell me, how, how's it going? And he said, this stuff works. He said, this is great. And, and he, so he went through point by point how they changed their hiring, how they changed organized, how they changed their reward people, how they trained people. Everything was changed along this. And it went in detail. And it wasn't just eyewash just to impress me. I mean, there right. were specifics. And I said, Anton, you've learned our management philosophy, market-based management, quicker than any executive of any company we've ever acquired. Really? Bottom up. People, oh, you're, you'd, we'd discount you. You're just an ex-gang member. You're an ex-prisoner. Believe right. me, everybody has a gift. And, and he has tremendous gift and capacity, which has been overlooked. And that's why he went down the wrong path. And that's what we want, a society that enables everybody to find and practice their gift. You know, I, you know, you also, I, I, I agree with you. You are to also, I think someone you were in, in your book, or I, I think it was your book that someone, someone asked you, like, you're not hiring the Harvards of the world or the Yales of the world. You know, why, like, how can you find good people, even, you know, in Wichita, you know, and I guess to your point, as like with Anton, like you find that the people who usually maybe who haven't had the, you know, who aren't the Ivy Leaguers, who have had it to be, ha ha have had a, a life to be a certain way or a, a charmed life, usually are the ones who are the um, shining star or the jam or like the diamond in the rough, who actually are the ones who are the hardest workers, who, who have the most to do, the most to say. I mean, can you, like... You, you know more than I do. I mean, I'm sure people ask you that all the time, right? Like, are you hiring from Yale? Are you going to no. this? You well, I mean, we will, but, but what we look for are not credentials. We don't care anything about that. We look for, well, we, we have eight guiding principles, which we describe in the book, but they boil down to, to, to two things to make it simple, which we look for. And the first is to be contribution motivated rather than negatively motivated. And the second is to have some gift or some talent that will enable us to create value for all the, the people we need to create value for, including fellow employees. And, and when, when we find people with those two things, whether they went to college, went to high school, doesn't make any difference. If they have those and we get them in the right role, the improvements are marvelous. And since we're doing a lot better job of that now, boy, when I go to a business meeting, I hear all the improvements and from people in the first line who didn't go to college. And so that's, I mean, it confirms it. And and just another thing that confirms it after, after I stepped down as president and just became the, the chairman, my successor, who was terrific, Sterling Varner, who I wrote about in the book, never graduated from college. And our our current president went to Emporia State. 
Now that's right up there with Harvard, I recognize, but <laughs> what is to me. <laughs> to you it is, yes, it of is, course. Because he is terrific. I, what, so you mentioned contribution motivated. What is that? Can you tell people what that, what yeah, that means? That, that's a concept from Maslow, people who want to succeed by contributing. They want a job where they can contribute, where they can help others. That's challenging. That causes them to learn and develop and self-actualize. And, 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 and what you see is what, what Maslow called deficiency motivated is what you see. Oh, I mean, like, like Frederick Douglass could have been deficient. I'm just a slave. I'm going to kill somebody or something. I'm, or I'm out now. I'm no longer a slave. I'm going to, I'm going to organize a group to go kill all these people or hurt them. Right. When he didn't have that attitude. He was contribution motivated. That's what makes you a great social entrepreneur. And that's what makes you successful in business. And so if we, if I, I tell our, our people who are recruiting, I say, okay, if you want to hire somebody uh, who's, who's deficiency motivated or negatively motivated, like wants to play politics or, or cover up, the, deny they ever made a mistake and pretend everything's perfect when they got a disaster. We see that everywhere. I said, if, if you, if you want to hire s somebody like that, hire them really slow and inept. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we get them out of here before they ruin us. Because we've hired a lot of uh, people who are really talented and weren't really contribution motivated. We right. made a mistake. And they've been a our biggest disasters in our history. Our biggest failures are from those people. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, so you, how do you do it though? Like, what, is there like a test that you give people when they first start? Like, is there like a, like a war, like, like a psychology test or how do people even begin the process? Well, what, no, if I, like for example, if I wanted to work for your company, which, you know, I, I'm just giving an example, what would be the process? Okay. We'd, we'd uh, bring you in for an interview. Okay. What's, what, what are your interests? What are your aptitudes? What, Tell us about your successes and your mistakes. And if you start off, well, I haven't had any made mistakes. Yeah. But, but the people I work with were my bosses. They didn't let me do anything. <laughs> and they ruined everything I did. And, right. and so, so it wasn't my fault. No, sorry. We hope right. you're going to work for our competitor. Exactly. <laughs> No, exactly. But the key here, once again, is to find people to do the interview who have this gift for mm -hmm. interviewing. Like my wife has that. When we meet somebody, she can spot problems with them much faster than I can. Yes, exactly. And this is, and this is, you know, I because I have this narrow, this narrow capability. I, I find partners and I, so that, that was my wife. Yeah. Share vision and values and have complementary capabilities. I'm, I'm good at this narrow range. She's good at everything else. <laughs> and I can't, we've been together 51 years and wow. I can't tell you how much she's helped me. She's changed my life. She's transformed me. When I wrote about her in the book, her and Sterling Barner are the two people who individually have, have helped me the most. 
does she interview for you sometimes still, or did, do you bring no. her into? No, no, but but she uh, she has a lot of opinions on yeah. people <laughs> we work with. Yeah, I'm sure she does. I think you, your wife and I will get along just fine. I'm sure. Um, do Do you ever watch television? Do you have time to like watch TV or like? Like, what do you do besides go to work at seven o'clock, wake up at six? Like, do ex what do you exercise? What do you eat? I want to know what you do, what your schedule is every well, day. I eat three meals a day, I, but I limit what I eat. So I do you don't, snack. No, I don't snack. Okay, I, I don't. I don't gain weight, uh, but I eat a try to eat a balanced diet, and I try to work out an hour and a half a day. Good for you. Wow. I mean, when you get to be my age, if you don't, <laughs> boy, you go down in a hurry. Wow. Uh, An hour and a half. So what do you do? What's your what's your workout regimen? Well, I start with uh, 30 minutes on the elliptical. I do intervals on it. Uh, Good for so you. So I can keep my, uh, my strength up. Yeah. And, uh, and then I do some mat exercise, core exercise, mat Pilates, and then I do... I do 30 minutes of weights, alternating days, upper body and lower body. Do you have a trainer? I hope you, you, you must have a trainer. I mean, well, I do. I, I do when I go to uh, uh, the desert. Uh, and but here in Wichita, I don't. We have a, a little gym in our basement that I go a little to. a little gym. Well, it's, <laughs> it's not a commercial gym. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. So you actually work out an hour and a half every day. Do you take one day off? Do you maybe just take a, like a day to just chill and not work out? Or it's seven days a week you work out? Well, I try to do seven days a week. And I don't always make a, an hour and a half. Sometimes if I'm pushed, it's only an hour. Oh, excuse me. Okay. And then is that in the morning before you no, go to no, the office? I, work out. I, I, I leave work a little early. And go work out before dinner, and then have dinner. And now, if my wife's out of town, then we Facetime at dinner, and Facetime with my kids and grandkids, and uh, and and then wow. come after dinner, and then I I then I work some more after dinner. But when I watch TV, wow. is when I'm working out. What's your favorite show? Oh, of all time. Yeah, of all time. Yeah, probably Lonesome Dove. Oh, okay. I don't know that one. How about one that's current that I would know or anybody else would know? That's about 30 years ago, I think. So you got <laughs> I, was gonna say, I don't know that show. <laughs> no, let me see. What would be my favorite show? You do a lot of documentaries, don't you? Yeah. No, I, I do. Yeah, there was a documentary by Neil Ferguson on, uh, what was it, on, on Connections. Yeah. Oh, and, okay. And showing how how bad news spreads faster than good news. Yes. And true. I mean, it's very similar to our, our one of our principles uh, from Polanyi, uh, philosopher of science called Republic of Science. And it, it's what Newton said. If I see further, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. So mm -hmm. what you need is build a network. And, and, and there, and if you want, people to help you you need uh, have these nodes that is they they have a circle of influence and you get them to understand what you do and trust you and then they will they will influence their circle and right that, that, but unfortunately 
bad rumors and and stuff about you spread much faster. And he he went he explained that in these documentaries, these series about why that is, why that's so, and all these bad rumors. And so the hate uh, spreads faster than the, and that's why people don't work with each other enough. Yeah, they hear these bad things and they believe it. Because yeah. that's why the news reported, because people love to hear bad news and trouble a lot more than they do good news. So um, we went through all of that. What's it called? I want to look, I want to watch, I want to see if I can find that. I think it's called Network, but I could be Network, wrong. Yeah. It's, it's Network, Network. Yeah. Network. I'm going to look at that. And then, so you don't watch like billions or anything like that? No, billions I, I, or... I, I lost interest. I tried that. But I I like like True Detective. I like that. You I, like that one? Do you, have you watched Succession? No, I I started. I didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't so crazy about that. I thought it would be better, and it wasn't. Um, and then I'm trying to think of one other one other thing that we didn't touch upon, and that I wanted to ask you about because you talk about it is the you talked about how one of your big principles is the second law of thermo uh, thermo was it yeah thermodynamics thermodynamics yeah. Do you mind just to talk about? I know you got to wrap. We, we got to wrap it up, but we didn't. Do you mind just talking about that a little bit? No, I'm happy run off? To. No, I. I you talk about this all day, right? Yeah, this, <laughs> this is in my sweet spot. Good. No, I and I. I took. I love thermodynamics. I was taking all these engineering degrees, and I was no good at practicing any of them, but I was good at the theory, and so <laughs> I took all courses I could on theory and get away with it, still get my degrees. Good. And so I took a lot of thermodynamics and I was really fascinated with the, the second law of thermodynamics, which is considered by maybe, maybe many of the top scientists to be the most important law of nature. So it's pretty important that we all have some idea what that is. And what 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 the second law says is that is that in a closed system. Entropy, which is uselessness, uh, or 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 uh, or randomness, virtually always increases, and the only way you can reverse that is with bringing in from the outside knowledge and energy. And so what I took this, and others have taken this. This doesn't only apply to physical processes, this applies to individuals, organizations, and societies. So look at look at what we've been talking about. The individuals who have accomplished something and succeed, like Newton said, I, I, if I see further, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. He didn't create all this himself. He learned, and then he built on it and advanced yeah. it and improved it. I mean, it's what Einstein said. He said the best fate for any theory is a limiting case for a future theory. In other words, and that's what we teach here at Coke, whatever we're doing, no matter how well we're doing, if we're best in the world, it isn't good enough because somebody's got to come up with a better way. And that's creative, what Schumpeter called creative destruction. These are all right. principles. I know, I love them. And and which is that that there is particularly today, there is continuing progress and transformation. 
so, so you as an individual, if you want to succeed, you have to be open. You have to build these knowledge networks and always learn, okay, who can help me? What ideas, what sources can I have that are going to give me principles that are going to enable me to create value for others and succeed? If you're a business, you've got to do the same thing or you're going to fall behind. Right. And if you're a country and you close yourself off, and this isn't just theory, this is the history of the world. China at one point was the most advanced society in every way, technologically. And then they had a, a, a change in rulers and they closed themselves off and they became one of the poorest. Yeah. And then they had changed again. And once again, they became among the most successful. And that's what's a little concerning about this country is we tend to close ourselves off to immigration, to trade, and we're just condemning ourselves. And right. just to help a few people that, are, that aren't really advancing and competing, but we're hurting everybody else. We're lowering the whole standard and we're lowering our rate of progress, which is long-term suicide. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, how did you guys get c connected, you and Brian, then? I know Brian and Brian stand together, but did you guys work together prior? Are you guys relatives? Like, are you a cousin no. of somebody? Not, like, not who? I know. <laughs> if, you play, if you figure out that we're relatives, you let me know. Okay, I was going to say, you'd be a very lucky guy, Brian. You know, very lucky guy. Well, I am a lucky guy. I, I met Charles uh, 21 years ago now. Uh, it's, it's been over 20 years. And oh, wow. I was right out of college. I went to work for an organization called the Mercatus Center that Charles Where'd you, hold on. Where did you go to college? University of Michigan. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Good college. All right. All right. That's a good, <laughs> they hired me nevertheless. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. You know, I know what I was doing. I moved from Michigan to uh, to just outside of DC and and um, two weeks into the job, uh, there was a board meeting and uh, I happened to be, you know, coming out of the men's room and I looked up and there's Charles Koch. And so I met him two weeks into my, my first job out of college. I, I uh, worked with him as, as uh, ran the Mercatus Center for uh, 10 of the 14 years I was there, sat across the board table from him. And about wow. seven years ago. his ability three years out of college. He, was, <laughs> he transformed the whole organization. It was a lot of fun. Great, great, great organization. That's amazing. But he asked me to do this about uh, six or seven years ago. And we've been, we've been working in this way together ever since. See, and, and on the book, I, I started on this book five years ago, and for the first four years, I I had all written and stuff, but I said, God, this isn't, I haven't written this in a way, it'd be a good guide for people to really help people. I mean, right. abstract, a bunch of irrelevant stuff. And so I said, Brian, <laughs> I, I give up. I said, the only way I will continue to work on this book is if you join me as co-author. Oh, wow. That's and nice. He came in and he slapped me around and straightened me out. And so together we reorganized it and and get it more got it more focused. And now we got a good book. What we really It's a great about, book, actually. It was it's a phenomenal experience. But what we did was we told the story of this work at Stand Together that you know Charles has been doing in one way or another for 60 years. It's a philanthropic community. And we're supporting thousands of these incredible social entrepreneurs. We're working with hundreds of philanthropists. And the lessons right in this book are lessons that we think can benefit other people who just want to make a difference in the world. So it's a lot of fun because we got to tell stories 
about the work that we've done in some cases that we hadn't thought about for a while. And these universal principles, they just, they apply for those things that are successful. They're applying the same principles. No, I shouldn't. I, I agree with you 100%. Like they're very applicable uh, and people can really t- partake in it even yeah. in their own communities. I, 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 yeah, I totally agree. And that's why I, I really did enjoy the book. Um, are you accepting any uh, protégés at this, at this time, Charles? Or do you have any? Do you have like a list? Do you get, how many people ask you daily if, at you, if you would mentor them? Yeah. Excluding me. <laughs> <laughs> No, we'd we'd be helping. We'd get we'd get you in touch and stand together and show you all our stuff. No, you joke about uh, you know big big part of what we do is education, yeah, right? And I know, I know. Trying to get people to uh, to be able to practice these principles that have made this work so successful. No, it's it's fantastic, and the book is called Believe in People. And you guys have been a real pleasure. All right, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I've learned a lot, and I like I said, I'm a big I, I'm a big believer in in your principles and how how they really could turn around not just you know communities institutional education i really appreciate you guys being on the podcast today thanks we appreciate so much you, yeah. jennifer thanks for your interest thanks a oh, lot ab- absolutely and i hope i can do this i'm not i wasn't just saying that i hope to get a copy of that book that you said by maslow yeah. Yeah. Right. And i hope to have a, an in person interview when we're allowed and able is that, is that a deal for sure. That'd be a deal. <laughs> Perfect. And great. We appreciate it. Habits and hustle. Time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind. Don't stop. Keep it going. Habits and hustle from nothing into something. All out. Hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries. Tune in. You can get to know them. Be inspired. This is your moment. Excuses. We ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle podcast. Powered by Habitnest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.